Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody here. I'm happy that to see at least this crowd of people that has been able to make it here with all of the changes in the plans that we did, because um, originally we were supposed to meet in the park, but I think all of us are relatively grateful that we're meeting indoors <laughs> today. So either way, um, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may have that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If you would just go ahead, we're going to just pray real quick for this morning, all right? Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we come before you so thankful, so thankful for your Son, so, so thankful that you in your sovereignty, in your authority, um, in your obedience, sent your, or I guess the son in his obedience, but sent your son to the cross to reconcile fellowship so that we as man could come before you so that we could have an intimate and deep relationship with you. Lord, I thank you for your word and the truth of it. I pray this morning that, Lord, you would open all of our hearts, including mine, that we would engage with your word and and grow in our knowledge and understanding of who you are. And as we grow in that knowledge, Lord, that we would fall more in love with you, that we would have our affections stirred for you. Lord, that you would use our lives to glorify your name and further your kingdom. Lord, I pray for clarity um, in, in my message this morning, not so that I can say I preach a good message, but so that we can all glean from the truth of your word this morning. Lord, I thank you just for this body of believers, and, and Lord, just a privilege it is to be able to, to preach your word to them. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we trust you in your name. Amen. All right, so I'm looking around the room. Pretty much everybody here knows that we've been going through the book of John for like the last 19 months or something like that. So I'm not going to do a huge recap. Um, that being said, last week, JT preached in John chapter 16. So I'm not going to recap his sermon because if you want to listen to it, he did a great job. Just listen to what he preached. But what I am going to do is read uh, John chapter 16, verses 20 through 24 to just kind of re-engage our minds of what was preached last week. So if you guys want to turn there, feel free. If not, I'm going to read it. John 16, 20 through 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, 
and no one will take that joy from you. In, the day that you. in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy be made full. So that was part of the passage that JT preached on last week. Talking to his disciples, giving them a kind of heads up that, hey, if you're a follower of me, this is what life is going to look like. Here in a few hours, you're going to just be absolutely devastated because the man that you have linked arms with, the one that you follow, the one that you believe is Lord, is going to be killed on the cross. You will be persecuted, you'll be pursued, you'll be put to death. But don't worry, your joy will be made full in me. I'm doing this for the sake of not just you, but all of mankind. To be able to enter into the throne room of God with boldness, whether you've failed and sinned, or whether you're walking in confidence because of who you know you believe in. So right after the footsteps of that, right after he finishes that, he goes into the high priestly prayer, or at least that's how it's defined in the ESV Bible. If you would, please turn with me to John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, and this is where we'll be spending our time today. I'll give you a couple of minutes. Again, that was John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you had, have given him authority over all flesh, to give him eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and that Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, or in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So first of all, and this is going to seem like a very basic observation, Jesus is praying to the Father. He opens it up with Father. As Jesus begins this high priestly prayer, we need to remember that Jesus is, is doing a couple things. One, he's interceding as our high priest. He's going before the Father on our behalf. And secondly, we need to remember this, this other fact that the Father and Jesus are not the same. Now, hear me. Yes. The Trinity, they are all one, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But the Father and the Son are not the same. The Father did not become flesh and dwell among men. Neither did the Spirit. The Son did. The eternal Word of God, the eternal Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is the one who took humanity and dwelt among us. 
We also must remember that because of this incarnation, the eternal word, um, when the fullness of time had come, that he had taken on flesh, Jesus here is lifting his eyes up to heaven and praying to the Father. And when he did so, he did fully as a man. Though he was fully God and fully man, in this moment he is going before the Father on his throne as Jesus Christ, the man who is born in, in Nazareth. Now, this is important because he addresses to him, he addresses to God Almighty as Father, which we're like, yeah, duh. God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, right? But what can we learn from this? What can we glean from this? Why is it important that Jesus Christ calls him Father? When we hear the title of Father specifically relating to God, we assume it means, it's pretty basic to understand that it means that God is our creator. He's the source, right? If that's the case, if that's all that the title of Father like means, then everyone on earth could call him Father because he is the source of all. But the title Father says something much deeper. Not only in how Christ relates to the Father, but also how we, through Christ, get to relate to the Father. The term Father says something about our relationship, doesn't it? It says something about the relationship Jesus Christ had, doesn't it? When we call God Father, we are saying, uh, saying more than the fact that he is our creator. Are we not saying that we are in a proper and right standing relationship with him? That we are in his love? That we are under his care? If he is our father, then we as sons and daughters, then we are his sons and daughters. And he is smiling upon us because we are his. The title Father here in this passage is descriptive. Because just as an earthly father loves, protects, encourages, and disciplines, and instructs his children, so too our Heavenly Father does to us for those who are found in Christ and are our fellow heirs with Jesus. Paul in, in Romans 8, I'll just read it, I'm not going to give the whole passage, but for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, whom cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, and heirs of God are fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that he may be glorified. Church, that's who we are. If we are found in the person of Jesus Christ, we are now fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is, as our high priest, seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God, right? In the person of Jesus Christ, the Father is well pleased. And we are found in the person of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean about our position? 
He's seated. Does anyone remember through the book of Exodus what was the significance of a high priest sitting down? The significance was when the high priest sat down, that meant that the work was finished. He had no more sacrifices to sacrifice for the people to be atoned for their sins. It means the work's completed. He sat down. We can kind of correlate that when we're done with our work day. Guess what? We sit down, right? We're tired, or at least most of us are. I know I'm tired, right? So we sit down. Christ is seated at, in the heavenlies at the right hand of God because his work is finished. And his work is finished, which means that those who are found in him, we are justified, we are sanctified, and we are forgiven. In completion, he's not further making us holy. We are learning more what it like, is like to be holy because that's what our relationship calls for. Just like I'm learning more what it means to be a better husband. It doesn't change the fact that I'm a husband. It changes the fact that I learned how to love my wife better. We're not becoming any more righteous because he's made us completely righteous by law. If that wasn't completed, he couldn't have fellowship with us. And we're completely forgiven, meaning, yes, completely forgiven. He looked at all of the weight of our sin. He bore it on the cross. He took the consequences of our sin. And then he said, no more. East is to the west. Even directionally, east to the west. Guess what? If you go east, you're always going east. If you go west, you're always going west. It's not north or south. There's no limit. Right? But church, we as heirs get to call God the Father, our Father, Abba. But how is this so? I know me. I know I'm a wretched sinner. I know I'm in desperate need of a Savior. I know my acts of righteousness or my attempts to be good are fleeting at best. The answer is that we are sons and daughters not by birth to this world, right? Like not just by being man, but by rebirth. It's not on a basis of our own goodness. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who is our high priest, who is our intercessor, who was our sacrifice. Our sonship is based solely upon and rooted in our union and our fellowship with Jesus Christ. Who is uniquely the only begotten Son of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
So when Jesus here, when he's praying, when he prays to the Father, though it is true that he was God with us, the God incarnate, we must also remember that there's a distinction between God the Father and Jesus Christ. He was the son that took on flesh, and he was fully, truly man. He, as our high priest, is our intercessor. And because he's our intercessor, for those who have faith in him, our our perfect sacrifice, our payment for my wretched, desperate sin, because that's who Jesus Christ is, if I'm found in him, I now have fellowship with the Father. Church, that's why it's important that he started this out with Father. He instructs us to pray that way, but he instructs us to pray with that intentional relationship. Not just, Heavenly Father, thank you for the food. No, Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your love toward me. Because I can now come to you boldly, just like Hudson, even when he sins, still comes to me, his Father. He still approaches me and says, Dad, I disobeyed. I didn't listen to Mom and take a nap. Knowing that there might be consequences for that, but knowing that he is secure in his relationship with me. Now, I'm not floating my boat. I am not a perfect father. I fail constantly. But for me, as a, as a broken father, to remember what the good father does for me, that I can continually and boldly approach his throne of grace and mercy like that passage in Hebrews. I can approach him saying, Father, I still desperately need you. Thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your faithfulness, even when I am unfaithful. Now teach me, use me. Spread the glory of you to this world through me. Church, may we never grow old of calling him Father. The title is beautiful. Now, not all of us here in this room have had good fathers. But that's not a fault of God. God is always a good father. He is the perfect father. And we can rely and rest in him. Because that's who he is. Secondly, as we continue on, I got all distracted there on father, okay? So father... The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may be glorified in you. What's important about this? the, The important aspect about this is that Jesus came with an intentional mission, didn't he? How many times has he referred to the hour? How many times has he said, my hour has not yet come? I didn't count it out. Shame on me. But it's a lot. So he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. This proves that Jesus came to accomplish or came to earth to accomplish a very particular mission. There was a very obvious hour that he has his eyes set upon. Was there not? 
The hour clearly refers to his glorification through the death, burial, and resurrection. This was the hour that was the pinnacle, the apex of why he came to earth. He came to die on that cross, to be buried and to rise, be rose again on the third day, conquering the power of sin and death in our lives so that he could be our savior, so that he could be our atonement, so that he could be our high priest. That's why he came. Being those positions, he came to restore and reconcile fellowship with the Father so that we could have a renewed relationship from the beginning of time when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, that fellowship was broken. They were kicked out of the garden. They were no longer able to commune with the Father. So from that moment on to the very point of Jesus' death on the cross, that's what he was reconciling. He was reconciling mankind to have fellowship with the Father. Sorry, walked away, got distracted. There's, a, there's another aspect to this. When you read on, he, in a, sorry, two seconds. When you read on, he, he goes, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now let's think about that for a minute. Okay, because when I think of giving authority over all flesh, I'm like, yeah, duh, right? Of course, Jesus is God of my life. He's the head of the church. But is that what it says? Does it say, you've given me authority over the church? Now, yes, 100%, that's absolutely true. For those who are uh, fellow heirs with Christ, children of God, is he the Lord of their lives? Yeah, absolutely. But it said all flesh. Not just the church. When he states this, what is he saying? He is saying that I am king of kings and lord of lords. I have authority, I have sovereignty over all flesh. Over everything that was created, it is mine, and I will be seated at the right hand of God until my enemies are made a footstool underneath my feet. That is who I am. I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. Not me, but Christ, right? Just follow with me. I don't want you guys to think I'm up here blaspheming, right? So church... Why, why is this important? It's important because there, there is a sense that all people have Jesus as Lord. Now, I am not saying all people recognize him as Lord. I'm not saying that all people t- submit to his lordship. I'm not saying that all people honor him as being the king of kings and the lord of lords. But Jesus Christ is Lord nonetheless. It is true that Christ has been given all authority over all flesh, Now that, that could be a very intentional and pointed moment, right? Like I came to be made authority to be made to have authority over all flesh. <laughs> Let's read verses one and two, because that's not why he came. 
that was a product of what came from his obedience, from his submission to the Father. But that wasn't the point. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. To what? To give eternal life to all you have given him. You see, he had to be the one in authority to be able to give the gift. And because he submitted himself to the Father, because he walked a perfect life, because he was a perfect atonement, now he is our perfect interceding high priest, and he is the one who has the authority to give us eternal life. So that we can walk in that fellowship, that reconciled fellowship with the Father. Jesus was praying to the Father, not only to be an example to us, but also to act as our high priest, as our intercessor. He prays to the Father being mindful of his mission. And his mission was to give eternal life to all who the Father had given him. Church, if you're found in Christ, this should make your heart jump with joy. That it's not on my ability to be the best. It's not my ability to know the word of God perfectly. Are those responsibilities? Yes, but it's not based off of my ability. My relationship is not based off of how good Tony is. It's based off of the authority of the person of Jesus Christ. It is based off of me being found in him. He relates to me solely if I am found in Jesus Christ or not found in Jesus Christ. If I am found in Jesus Christ, he is well pleased. If I am found in Adam, I am condemned. It takes zero acts of righteousness to, to be counted righteous in the eyes of God. And it takes zero acts of sin to be condemned. It is solely based off of being born in Adam or being reborn in Christ. If I am in Christ, I get to live in freedom, I get to live in hope, I get to live with a new life and a new heart that is free from the bondage of sin and death. That's why it's important that he says I have authority over all flesh. Because now he has authority to set me free. To set us free. And church, like we have the privilege to call him Abba, Father. We have the privilege to call him Father. Like that wrecks me. I, I have a great dad. Sure, we've got our struggles, but like I've got a really good dad. But I get to go to the Heavenly Father who knows the secrets. I don't even want to tell anybody. And he still says, Tony, because you are in my son, I am well pleased. Now walk in a manner that is worthy of my name. Fall in love with me. Walk in obedience because you love me. Let me use your broken, shattered life. Let me restore it. Let me teach you about what it means to be reconciled. And then go share that beautiful, glorious news with the world who is in desperate need of a Savior. Like I get to do the Bible studies at Victory Mission on Friday mornings. Guys, this is what we talked about. Oh, the joy you could see in their eyes when you start breaking down the gospel for them that it doesn't matter what their past was. It matters what Jesus Christ's past was. 
It doesn't matter if they murdered somebody. If they're found in Jesus Christ, if their faith is put in Jesus Christ, they've been forgiven. They've been set free and they can walk in a new life, in a new hope. We sit here and we magnify our sin and we should. We should concentrate on our sin. We should kill it like JT was saying last week. We should run from our sin. Put it to death. But church, the joy is in the person of Jesus Christ who has already conquered it all. Even with the Victory Mission guys, one of the guys was like, yeah, I can't wait till the Lord returns. And then because I was a former Marine, you know, we're going to go fight the devil. We're going to put him in his place. And I was like, okay, so we're going to work on some theology here. No, you're not. And he's like, well, what do you mean, man? Like, I want to fight for God. And I was like, then you do that here. You pursue people and you share the good news. But the good news is that Christ has already completed the work. He's already defeated the devil. So now your job is to flee from, flee from sin, pursue holiness, glorify your God with your life. That's what it's about. It's funny because, you know, <laughs> as we continue on, like, this was Christ's mission, mission, right? To give eternal life to all whom the Father had given him. And this was the mission that he accomplished, right? He died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again. And now, he gives eternal life to those who the Father has given him. He made atonements for our sins, he intercedes as our high priest, and has given eternal life to them through the ministry of the promised Holy Spirit, okay? But how often, this is me speaking, I can't tell you how often I think about heaven as being a place that I get to go. Pearly gates, streets of gold, maybe a couple angels with harps. I've missed it. That's not heaven. Those might be aspects of heaven. But heaven is about a person. The beauty of heaven is God. He's what makes eternal life eternal. He's what makes paradise paradise. He's the source of all life and apart from him there is no life. Here, Jesus is talking about a relationship. He starts out his prayer with Father. And then he talks about knowing him. Two aspects of relationship. The thing that makes life good and pleasant and to be desired is God. He is what makes heaven heaven. Church, we are made to know him. We were made to worship him. And we are made to have communion and fellowship with him. Augustine was, was right when he said to God, You have made us for yourself. 
and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Church, from the beginning, Christ had his eyes set on the cross. He had his eyes set on the cross because he knew when he died on that cross, mankind could be reconciled to the Father. We could have fellowship with the Father. We could eternally be with the Father. Then he continues on and he says, and this is eternal life. This is like my favorite part. So what is eternal life? Well, Jesus, knowing that we like to know, tells us exactly what eternal life is. And this is eternal life, that we know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Jesus beginning his high priestly prayer, the the last thing really he says to his disciples before going and parting ways, going to Gethsemane, getting arrested, getting beaten, flogged, and crucified. This is how he, he encapsulates and closes his conversation with his disciples. He tells them what their relationship now is for those who are found in him. He tells them to not be sorrowful. He tells them what eternal life is and he tells them why, like, the beauty of what eternal life is. It's not about pearly gates. It's not about having an easy life. It's about knowing the person of Jesus Christ and the Father who sent him. That's what eternal life is. He prayed being mindful of his mission. He prayed with intention so that mankind could be reconciled. The creation could be reconciled to the creator and have fellowship once again. No longer being separated from the garden, no longer being separated from his throne room, no, no longer being separated even from the, the most holy place. Churches, sons and daughters, as fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, we are able to approach the throne of grace and mercy with boldness. Because we know who we are. Not because I'm good enough, but because Jesus Christ was. And I get to walk in that life, in that hope, in that joy. No, no longer, like, just like in that. Uh, passage that I read from last week in chapter 16, you know, we, childbirth. I have watched my wife who just arrived, sorry, don't mean to embarrass you. I've watched her bear four children. Honestly, part of the reason we didn't want anymore, which the Lord blessed us with two beautiful twins, but the first two were so traumatic on her and the child, like Hudson and Lily, that that was one of the main reasons for their safety that we didn't want to have any more children. Funny thing is, she finds out she's pregnant, find out it's twins, and she was pumped to do it again. I don't understand. I am the type of guy that if I get hit, guess what? I'm probably not going to go do that thing again because it hurt. The only thing I do repetitively is smash my thumb with a hammer. Right? 
but that pain of child labor and like lots and lots and lots of pain. She was ready to do it again because of the joy that she knew would come. And that's exactly what Christ did on the cross. He suffered the pain knowing the joy that would come. Lastly, in this passage, these five verses, we see Jesus open and close with the same request. In 17.1, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory, or he lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And then again in verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Church, when we speak of glory, we're talking about God's holiness. We're talking about his pure righteousness, his radiant light, like so perfect and holy and glorious that Moses' face glowed to where he had a veil because it was scaring the nation of Israel. When we talk about God's glory, that's what we're talking about. That Moses, Moses didn't even get to see God's face because he would have died. All he got to see was a passing shadow or the back of him. And his face glowed. This is what Jesus is requesting. Now it comes in, in two ways. One, he's going to be glorified when he dies on the cross. When he completes his mission. And I know it sounds odd, but when Jesus goes to the cross as the fulfillment of prophecies, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and now, uh oh. I'm sorry, guys. I tapped with my thumb and lost my place. Yeah, so either way, he's going to, one, through the cross. It's ironic, here we are. Um, But it was on that cross that Christ would be glorified and the Father glorified through him. It was in his suffering that his perfect obedience was revealed to man. It was, in, it was in his submission to the will of God, dying even a criminal's death on a cross, that he didn't account his former glory to be something that was grasped, but something that he would gladly give up for the very purpose of reconciling fellowship for man to the Father. And in doing so, glorified the Father in his obedience, but then the Father glorified him ascending him to the right hand of God where he is seated in the heavenlies. In his submission to the cross, his pure righteousness, his perfect obedience, and his holiness were all displayed. And they were displayed for all mankind to look at. Paul in Philippians 2.5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, being God the Father, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? Because he's the king of king, the Lord of lords, has authority over all flesh. So whether you believe or don't, his title remains the same. His position remains the same. Church says who we get to serve Going back to the passage I read in the beginning, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to find help in a time of need. Church, his high priestly prayer, the way he closes his communion with his disciples before he leaves this earth, he, he, he prays as our high priest. And it's recorded for our benefit so that we know not only who Jesus Christ is, that he retains and holds a position of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that one day everyone will fall underneath his authority, whether they like it or not, but also that that God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, we are found in him for those who believe by faith that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. In church, we get to walk in freedom and in life and in hope, knowing that because of what Jesus Christ has done as our sacrificial lamb and now our interceding high priest, seated in the heavenlies, he, he declares us to be justified, sanctified, and forgiven. Which means by law we're made right, relationally we're made right, we're holy, and we are also forgiven. And he's walking through that with us. Church, he opens his high priestly prayer and it continues on, but in these first five verses, he declares who he is and who we are in him. He tells us what eternal life is going to be. He encourages us to get into his word to know him because in knowing him, that's where eternal life is found. He tells us these things so that we can be encouraged, so that we can walk through this world, with our suffering, with our failures, with our shortcomings, even with our successes, he tells us these things so that we can keep our eyes focused on the one who is able and the one who can, and the one who we are to live our lives to glorify. Church, this is so encouraging. Literally, when I think about the good news of the gospel, it wrecks me because I know me. I know I am in desperate need of a savior, but then I hear about the position that I get to hold because of Jesus Christ and it makes me want 
well, weep like heavens above. That's who Christ is and that's what he's done for me. I don't deserve to walk in freedom. I deserve to be crucified. That's the condemnation that I should hold, but because I am found in Jesus Christ, I can walk in freedom. I can admit my sin knowing that I can approach that throne of grace freely and openly and boldly and ask for forgiveness because he is my father. And though there may be discipline, he does it for the sake of forming me into the image of his son. And why does he use a weak and broken vessel like me? To glorify his name and advance his gospel. And I get to read his scripture and know who he is. Know what he desires for me in my heart. I get to believe and I get to share that good news with those who I interact with. Church, he is worthy of praise. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our worship. Whether you're struggling with sin today or whether you're feeling like you're on cloud nine because you had a really good Bible study, our relationship for those who are found in him is that he is well pleased with us because of what Jesus Christ has done. So church, walk in that position knowing that you are a son or a daughter of God. Grow in your knowledge and understanding so that he can form your life into the image of his son. One, so that you can glorify his name. And two, so that you can live in the fullness of life that is found in only Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, you are worthy of all praise. You have been gracious to us indeed. Thank you for sending your son to earn for us eternal life, which is the knowledge and relationship with you. Thank you for sending your, your spirit to apply it to us. Lord, be highly exalted through your people as we live in obedience to you in this world, pointing always to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Purify us, grow us, use us to bear, bear fruit through us, all to the glory of your most holy name. That was somebody else's prayer, but I thought it was just beautiful. Beautiful for what our hearts should be. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your son. I thank you that he came and lived a perfect life. That he fulfilled the old covenant by living a perfect life, a sinless life. And because he did so, Lord, he became the guarantor, the writer of a new covenant. A new covenant that had nothing to do with my ability. A covenant that, that he said, if you are found in me, the Father is well pleased. 
because I have guaranteed, I've been the guarantor of all of it. Lord, I, I thank you for giving us eternal life. I, I pray that as we walk through our daily lives this week, whether we're engaging at work, home, uh, with friends, whatever it may be, Lord, that you would just allow us to remember the beauty of your good news, Lord, that in times of struggle that we depend on faith and who Jesus Christ is and, and submit to your authority. And Lord, in times of success that we would humbly glorify your name because you are worthy. Lord, I pray that this truth would not just be news that hit our ears or information that we can have a good conversation with, but Lord, that it would make the trip to our hearts, that it would change the way that we live, that our perspective would be re-engaged to be focused on you. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we trust you. To the one who is worthy, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. In your name, amen.